What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. I'm just checking with my clock here, making sure for those of you watching on CBSN, that little bit of a dive on the camera. I'm just working on my clock so I keep track of time. Uh, great show, great show. Just sit down and get ready to be uh, informed and, I guarantee you, entertained, but mostly informed. We don't do this that often on this show, but we're going to do what I call and what we call in the trade a reporter's notebook. Look, people... Reporters go out and cover lots of stories, and what they get on air is a fraction of what they know. What they put in a newspaper is a fraction of what they know. That is to say, if they're a really good reporter, that's true. And we have one of the very best who works at CBS with us this week, Charlie Daggett. He has been in Afghanistan for a good long while. We're going to talk in great detail about what he has seen, what he's reported up close, what he has seen, what he has heard on all sides of the conflict that is, from the American perspective, winding down in Afghanistan. But trust me, that conflict is not winding down in any other sense. Charlie Daggett, great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Tell our audience where you are, Charlie, and why. Uh, I'm currently in Greece. I'm self-isolating on a, uh, on an, a Greek island because uh, headed back to the UK, which is where I live, would have meant uh, 10 days of self-isolating in a airport hotel and this is the easier option so um yeah it's uh things could be worse but i've hopped here from kabul understood how long were you in afghanistan on this most recent reporting journey well this last time i was there for almost three weeks but i went to israel in between to cover the netanyahu story but before that i was there for almost another three weeks so from late uh, april uh, through May 1st or the first week of May and then through now probably six weeks in the past two months. How many times have you been to Afghanistan in your career as a reporter? Do you know, people ask me that all the time and I probably should have kept a record of it. Right. <laughs> I, I, can say, I can say dozens. Um, my first foray into war zones is actually Iraq. After 9-11, I was sent out to Bahrain and that's where the 5th Fleet was organizing uh, trips into a place called Camp Rhino. Uh, and that was my job then. Uh, so I did Iraq before I did Afghanistan, but certainly, I don't know, 35, 40 times. Been going there a long time. So let's start uh, meta, big picture. Mm. What should Americans and th- those listening around the world, because we have a global audience for this show, understand as most important about where things are in Afghanistan? And what your feeling was as you left and watched the Americans leave? 
Well, first of all, I'm, I'm going back and I'm worried about going back, not for my own safety. I'm just worried about what I might find. I'll be there for August 31st when the last of the U.S. troops pull out. And I can tell you, I'm I'm not a catastrophist. I, 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 it, it may seem strange covering uh, conflict zones that I'm fairly optimistic about the future because in general terms, uh, the good guys win. Uh, I have never seen so many people so worried about the state of Afghanistan as I did when I left. And I think the important thing is, is how quickly it has accelerated the disintegration of Afghanistan. So I told you before I was there in uh, late April, early May, uh, there was a, a sort of full court press. There was a two minute offense that the Taliban were starting to implement then. They were taking over these great regions, uh, especially to the north. These districts were falling like dominoes and the provinces, especially the rural areas were falling. But it has stunned everybody, the Afghans, Americans, the White House, how quickly the Taliban advance and the offensive has gone on in the past six weeks or so. So now you've got a situation where you have the Taliban are starting to surround, not starting to, they are surrounding the provincial capitals. And I'm not going to get too granular about this, but they're surrounding the urban centers and the cities, and they're waiting essentially for the last American soldier to leave before pulling the trigger. At the same time, the Afghan government is now late to the party, unfortunately, is starting to consolidate their forces around these city centers, most importantly, the uh, the commandos who are the most capable fighting forces, but they are sadly few in number. But really what we've, what we've done is set the stage for a showdown. So the Taliban is, I hate to use the, the, the old cliche, tightening the news, but that's exactly what's happening along these provincial capitals and Kabul itself. So I, I can't really see a, a diplomatic solution. There may be a diplomatic solution, but the Afghan government, the Afghan people, uh, sadly, are really going to be staring down any kind of negotiations through the barrel of a gun. Right. One of the things we love to do on this show, Charlie, is uh, get some core definitions on the table. People think they understand what things mean, but they might not. Who are the Taliban? I think Americans think, I know who the Taliban are. I'm not sure they do. Who are they? Right. Well, the Taliban, the word Taliban means students. And they had taken over Afghanistan from the late 90s, 1996. They were certainly in charge of Afghanistan uh, in 2001 after the attacks, uh, or during the attacks of 9-11. And they harbored al-Qaeda, um, including Osama bin Laden. So it was from Afghanistan that the attacks of 9-11 were uh, launched. Uh, and under the under the protection of the Taliban. Now, the Taliban grew in strength and power, partly because Afghanistan at the time was largely lawless and they had imposed law um, in their own way. And the people in these regions, especially the regions in the south, they accepted it because as we as I have learned as a war zone correspondent, you, you tend to side with the, the people that are winning. Even if you're not particularly happy with them, you don't fight the guys who are winning, whether it's the Americans or the Taliban or whatever. And that is what was happening in the South. However, 
Afghanistan, by its nature, for years, people have been saying this for 40, 50 years, they've been at war. I wouldn't say it was war. It's conflict between ethnic tribes. The Taliban is part of the Pashtun ethnic tribe from the south. So they do have an element of support there. But as they travel further north, that support runs out, certainly in terms of the local population. So it is a movement. Um, it, it is indigenous. That's really important to point out here. Uh, they are. They feel that they're fighting on behalf of Afghanistan itself. They feel that they are the true Afghanistan, that the Afghan government is a puppet government that's been put in place by Western powers, namely the United States. So yes, they are an insurgency, uh, but as far as they're concerned, they are the true Afghans. Is Al-Qaeda still there? There's 100%, and here's the reason. When, you, when I was speaking to um, General Zia, who at that time was in charge of the military. He has since been pushed aside as many have been. He said to try to extract uh, Al-Qaeda from the Taliban would be extracting uh, mothers and fathers, nephews, nieces. They marry in. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are like that. So interwoven. they may not, they're interwoven and they may not say I identify as Al-Qaeda, but there are Al-Qaeda members, active members, that are within the Taliban ranks. So you cannot extricate them. Now, are they operating as cells? No, because it's too obvious, certainly under the, uh, the guise or overwatch of the United States and the intelligence networks there. It would be too obvious to have an Al-Qaeda cell. Uh, but to say that Al-Qaeda has been removed uh, from the Taliban or Al-Qaeda doesn't exist in Afghanistan. If you speak to any Afghan, I was going to say military person, any Afghan political person, they'll say, well, it's a fool's errand. They are, they're literally related to one another. So Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, in certain areas, I'm not saying across the board, in certain areas, especially in the South, they go hand in hand. That is the voice of Charlie Daggett, our special guest. A reporter's notebook, this edition of The Takeout, everything you need to know, I hope, about Afghanistan, which may prove to be this year's national security foreign policy story for all America. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout coming up in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. It's my honor to have Charlie Daggett with us. He is quarantining in uh, an island off of Greece because he has been in Afghanistan for a good long while. He's doing that because uh, he can. Uh, and it's better, as he said, to be there than at an airport hotel in London. No offense directed toward London airport hotels. I may sometime in my future career need to use one. So no offense directed there. Also, Charlie, uh, you can probably hear in the background, is at a restaurant. I am glad to see that he is doing that. He is indirectly reviving the atmosphere the show had for so many years when it was at a restaurant. I guarantee you, folks, we are going to be back at a restaurant very soon, possibly as soon as next week. Details to come. Charlie, uh, back to Afghanistan. So another basic question. Uh, 
I hear references in Washington to ISIS also being in Afghanistan. Is it? Uh, yes, I witnessed that myself. ISIS uh, is it nascent. Uh, they are a small group of individuals, um, but they punch above their weight. And, and here's why. And it's, it's some of the most horrific um, attacks and atrocities that I have witnessed myself in Afghanistan have been at the hands of ISIS. Uh, they have attacked the Hazara community, which is an ethnic Shia community, um, who have demonstrated in the past and something like 180 people were killed in that attack alone. You may remember a few months ago, I was there uh, when there was a, an attack on the girls' school um, in Kabul and 85, 85 people were killed there. Most of them were young girls, young students. Uh, the Taliban say they had nothing to do with it. I'm not sure you can trust the Taliban anyway. There, there may have been some complicity in there because uh, the Haqqani network, we won't, won't get too involved, but as far as the Taliban are concerned, the Haqqani network essentially run um, Kabul, the capital. So any uh, event like that would certainly or likely anyway have been condoned or even assisted by the Haqqani network or the Taliban. But it really does have the fingerprints of ISIS, ISIS who are against um, young girls going to school, women going to school, uh, that that launched these spectacular anonymous attacks. And I was there in Nangahar. I was on an embed with U.S. forces who were working with uh, Afghan forces. And that is where uh, ISIS in Afghanistan is at its most active. There's been, you know, an identified cell in that area, Corazon, as they call it, ISIK. Uh, and, and I watched as Afghan forces with the backup of U.S. forces went after ISIS. They were clearing this village. And they actually, it was interesting to me because we were watching it all um, using surveillance and drones. And they were pushing the, Af or the ISIS, suspected ISIS fighters out of that village. And one of the American commanders said, well, they're kind of moving too fast. This doesn't really look um that efficient if they were really checking every house and really going through and checking every person who was putting putting down a rifle and picking up a broom it would take longer than than is is, is than it's taking but what they did is push them right up into the mountains and then they left them there and i said well why why stop there and they said oh that's taliban territory the taliban will take care of them so there are certain times that the the ideologies or ideologies of isis and the ideologies of the Taliban work hand in hand. More likely, though, the Taliban really doesn't want ISIS in their backyard. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Haqqani network. What is that? The Haqqani network. Well, you know what's really important here, Major, and I'm glad that we can have these kind of conversations because I can't cover it in a minute and a half. You I can't. can't cover it in two minutes. That's why that that's I what can't. the that's what the eternal value of a reporter's notebook conversation is because all this stuff is in your notebook. I want my audience to hear it. Yeah. So, okay. The Haqqani network is, is indicative of, of when we use the umbrella term, the Taliban, the Taliban now suggests a sort of centralized authority, something that has control over all of the Taliban. We call it the Taliban as if it's a thing. The Taliban really is not a thing. The Taliban is a group of little things. And there are certain groups within the Taliban uh, that are more active, that are more violent, that are more extreme. So whenever you suggest that there's going to be a deal uh, with the Taliban, 
you have to take that with a pinch of salt because there will be the certain extremists that will say, well, no, there is no deal. Then you have to uh, invoke the criminal element, which is strong. Going back to your question about the Haqqani Network, the Haqqani Network is one of the most, probably the most violent offshoots of the Taliban. They're in control of uh, Kabul. And that's clearly very important. So they're the ones, if there's going to be a spectacular attack inside Kabul itself, that will be the Haqqani network. If there's going to be a complex attack, and that's where you've got suicide bombers followed by um, uh, gunmen who rush a place. It happened at the Intercon a couple of years ago. That's a complex attack. That was the work of the Haqqani network. The Haqqani network does not answer to the Taliban. The Haqqani network will continue to uh, to push and to launch these spectacular attacks in Kabul itself, and they're not beholden to any sort of agreement that you might see in Doha. And then the Taliban have an opportunity to say, well, you know, we can't rein in everybody. And this is where it becomes really important when we talk about the security of the airport, we talk about the security of the U.S. embassy going forward. The Taliban have said, we have no intention of overrunning the embassy. However, we can't be responsible for more extreme groups who may be bent on revenge. So there's their out. Right. So I want to get to the Afghan government in a second, but I think it's also important for people to understand the role that Pakistan plays directly or indirectly in all of this. Help our artists understand that. Well, when you speak to the Afghan government, uh, Across the board, they will tell you that Pakistan is funding, is training, is providing shelter for not just the Taliban, Taliban leadership, but Al-Qaeda. And we have to remember that Osama bin Laden was not caught in Afghanistan. He was caught in Pakistan. Abbottabad. Abbottabad. Then it raises questions about the Afghan, excuse me, the Pakistani intelligence, right? The ISI, who certainly would have known. How could they not have known, right? So then you've got the U.S. Uh, uh, special forces conducting an operation inside a country of a supposed U.S. ally in order to extract enemy number one inside Afghanistan. And I can tell you now, and nobody is refuting this, in the old days... During the winter months, what would happen is the Taliban leadership would go over to Pakistan and there would be a fighting season in the same way that there's a baseball season. And I don't mean to make light of that, but I mean, they do have a declaration of a day like there's the first pitch. It actually did happen. It hasn't happened in the past couple of years, which is why you've seen these great territorial gains. But what would happen is Taliban leadership would go to ground and they would do it in Karachi and Quetta in Pakistan. Nobody's refuting that. That happened. So you cannot refute the claim that Taliban leadership at the very highest level has uh, sought refuge in Pakistan. Now, to take a, a few steps further, there are those that argue, and I haven't, I can't say this, you know, with carte blanche. Nobody can. Maybe high-placed intelligence officials can, but they're not going to say it because it's so sensitive. Pakistan is a U.S. ally. They're a necessary U.S. ally, especially going forward. But are they giving shelter? Are they giving training at the madrasas? Are they the extremism for these young men? And believe me, I've seen uh, Taliban fighters 
They are young men. They're idealists. And, and uh, all of this training is happening in Pakistan. So until you solve that Pakistani problem, you're going to have a Taliban. And it's also a nuclear power. It is a frustrating U.S. ally, probably at the highest list of the five or six most frustrating U.S. allies for all the reasons you just outlined. So, Charlie, I want to set you up before we go to break. We've got about 30 seconds to go, so I'll take us to break. But I want you to begin to prepare for your uh, a description of two things when we come back. One, what constitutes the Afghan government? Uh, is it a sovereign and governing government, or is it a government essentially in name only? Does it have any popular support Question one. Question two, you described at the beginning all of this fear and anxiety about what will come next. We'll talk about the things that are most feared and people are most anxious about when we get back. Segment three of The Take with Charlie Daggett in just one second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Charlie Daggett is our special guest, CBS correspondent, war zone correspondent, been to Afghanistan dozens upon dozens of times. So I am deeply indebted to him for this on-site reporting that you can't get any other way. So talk to my audience, Charlie, about the Afghan government, because again, that's a label. Oh, the Afghan government, that's a thing. What is this thing? How much popular support, if any, does it possess? How fragile is it? What are its near-term prospects? Well, the, the Afghan government, led by President Ashraf Ghani, is really a sort of conglomerate um, of individual interests, as many governments are, the United States included. However, it becomes far more pointed when you're talking about Afghanistan because it is a divided nation. It's divided along tribal lines. It's divided along ethnic lines. Um, because of that, they have they make sure that the leadership is split up between you know the Tajiks and Pashtuns and everybody that makes up uh, Afghanistan. Now that's great on paper. Uh, it's very difficult to run a, a unity government uh, in reality if you're pragmatic. I can tell you with absolute certainty that Ashraf Ghani, the president, is under a tremendous amount of pressure. And here's why. There are negotiations currently underway in Doha that the Americans, the American government is partially uh, involved in with uh, special uh, envoy, um, Zalmay Khalilzad. Yep. Right, who's been working on behalf of the Trump administration and now the Biden administration to push forward intra-Afghan talks. Where it becomes difficult is if there is the suggestion of say an interim government where you're going to include uh, Taliban membership and leadership, the first thing they're gonna ask for is that Ashraf Ghani leaves. Ashraf Ghani is not going to leave. So the, the goal of the Taliban, the one thing you can trust them when they, when they say something, they want to run the country. They want to take over the government. It's crystal clear. They have said that. Even if there's going to be an interim phase, they want to run the government. However, Ashraf Ghani knows full well, and most of Afghanistan knows, if there were a popular election tomorrow, they would lose. So there's no way. They don't have that kind of popular support. The Taliban would lose. Absolutely. 100%. They have nowhere near the kind of popular support that they would like to think. Because once they start moving into those northern territories, I mean, look at 
it's it's a militant group who's trying to take over the country and they're killing civilians and going after Afghan forces with or without U.S. forces there. So using you can fear under, and intimidation, every using step of the fear way. and intimidation, wanting to wind back the clock. You know, one Afghan official said, if you look at the Taliban policy right now, they're trying to come across as sort of modern thinking, future thinking that the, it's a Taliban 2.0. It was described in this way. The Taliban's policy is two inches deep and an ocean wide. So they they don't they don't really once you start looking into it, they say, OK, we want to allow girls to go to school and young women or women to hold important jobs in keeping with Islamic tradition or in keeping with Islamic teachings. So there's that's a whole lot of interpretation. there. OK, and that yeah, there's is a what, lot of that, room for them to maneuver downward toward the 14th it, century. Exactly right. And once they're in control now, they're not looking, the Taliban isn't looking at, at a government from 20 years ago. They're not looking at a, a Kabul from 20, 20 years ago. Kabul had about 250,000 people. Right now, there are almost 7 million there. Everybody's got cell phones. Everybody's connected. You're looking at a whole generation who grew up without Taliban control, young women who know how the rest of the world works. They do not want to be abandoned by this. The Taliban realize this and they appreciate that. And they're trying to sort of modernize. But President Joe Biden said himself, you and I were both listening, when he said during his speech, he was asked, can the Taliban be trusted? Absolutely not. Do you trust the Taliban? No. Well, how on earth can you begin to do a deal with the Taliban, right. whether you're right. the Afghan government or the United States, if, if your starting place is that you don't trust the Afghan government? I'm sorry, Understood. we went off message there. Yes. The no, Afghan no. government, as it sits right now, is under a lot of pressure. Ashraf Ghani's uh, days are numbered with or without the Taliban. He has not been on television. He has not been rallying the forces. The country is disintegrating and they're in need of a strong leadership, a strong message, and it just simply isn't happening. So uh, now to what people that you talked to on all sides of this were most afraid of as you left. Uh, and you said that was the most afraid you heard anyone describe the future of Afghanistan and all your many trips there. What are they most afraid of? And what do they believe the time horizon is? Well, the, what everybody is most afraid of, and I'll start with the Afghan side. We'll move on to the U.S. military side in a moment. Start with the Afghan side. Look, it, it's pretty fundamental. They, they, they're afraid of a Taliban takeover, and it's happening. So it's clear that the Taliban is taking over these regions and they're surrounding these provincial capitals. They're afraid of war. That would be number one for any of us, right? They're, they're afraid of their own security, but they're, they're also afraid of what the Taliban is going to bring. And there, there's a sense of inevitability about it. In the past, and I know this might seem strange, but Afghanistan, although it's been in conflict, it hasn't, the country itself hasn't been at war. You know, I went to the American University. There, there are young people there who are Western educated, speak perfect English, and they have Western ideals and they have great ideas about the future. And, you know, for a time, there was a sense of optimism, of hope, that things are going to get better, of inclusivity, that you wouldn't just assume, you use the word Afghanistan and you just associate it with war in the way that we do Iraq and Syria. The Afghans don't want to be associated with war, but now there's inevitability about it. So the first fear is their own security, clearly. Second, a Taliban takeover and rewinding the clock, pushing girls out of school, the beating. Return of Sharia law. The return of Sharia law and, and the hideousness that the Taliban uh, not only 
not only um, uh, enforced, uh, but showed off its enforcement. You know, there are young people who don't remember that, but there are certainly people my age and a little bit younger that do. And they're terrified of that going back to what it was. Um, and, and what are and the then, Americans afraid of? And do you think from the White House there is an excess of happy talk? Yes. Yes. I try not to get political about it, but I, I can tell you. I spoke no, but with, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not asking that as a political question. I'm asking that as a lived, observed reality versus uh, gussied up rhetoric in Washington, which yes. every political party and every leadership structure in this city has found itself victim to in the past. And, and I get it, too. Listen, I, having been to Afghanistan as many times as I have, I, I, I would like to see a glass half full. I would like to see a happy ending. I would like to see the Afghan military standing on its own two feet. It's about time they did. Uh, but none of those are reality. The best case scenario, and there are no best case scenarios, is that whatever is to come is going to be merciful and short, uh, that there won't be a civil war. I think there will be. Uh, that the Taliban will tighten the noose but not pull the trigger, to mix metaphors, that the Afghan government uh, will not launch, as they intend to do, wide-scale offensive, because a lot of people are going to get killed, and a lot of refugees are going to be sent, or, you know, internally displaced people, you know, refugees within their own country. We're, but we're already seeing it in Kunduz. I was speaking to General uh, Scott Miller uh, and we've had several conversations over the past couple of years. And I said, what's the worst case scenario for you, General? And he said, the worst case scenario, and we're going back a couple months now. His worst case scenario was that the Taliban start taking over great sections of territory, swathes, swaths, whatever, but takes, take over this territory. And then the provincial capitals start falling like dominoes because any military person would know that it's all about momentum on both sides. If if the insurgencies start taking places like Kunduz and Ghazni and Kandahar and Helmand, and they just start falling, well, as you've already seen and we've reported, the Afghan military surrender. They don't want to die. They're fighting over a territory that isn't even theirs. Um, that is what his, his worst worry is, and that is what's happened. In fact, if anything, that's happened much more quickly than anybody had anticipated. Now, does that mean, as as many have said, the Kabul will will fall, you know, within six months? I'm not entirely sure. They they may take over, and I've been there myself. The front line is now surrounding Kabul, but once you start once you start taking the choke points and the major airports and the inroads, it and becomes the borders, a lot more complicated. Charlie, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. Back with Charlie Daggett and more on the future of Afghanistan on the Takeout Returns. I'm Major Garrett. Back in one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Charlie Dackett is our special guest. Charlie, uh, I cut you off because we had to run to break. So uh, you mentioned 
if the Taliban and its uh, insurgency gets to Kabul, that's a much more complicated prospect. It's uh, block by block. There's airports. There's uh, large streets. Um, and there'll be resistance. Um, walk us through what you think, based on your conversations there, that might look like. And I know you can't know capital letters for might. Well, first of all, Kabul is huge. Uh, you know, it's 7 million people, and it, it grew very quickly, which, which means it's, it's terribly congested. They're sort of mid, not high rises by any description as we might know in the United States. But there's been this incredible expansion. However, there, because it grew too big too quickly, there are some pinch points around it. And when I went to, it used to be that when I went to the front lines, I'd have to get a helicopter and then go to the front lines, usually with U.S. forces or even with Afghan forces. This last time, I drove from where we were working in Kabul, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, we got to Bagram, and then about another 20 minutes uh, just north of there, we got to Kapisa, which is now the Taliban front line. And the forces there were absolutely getting hammered. I mean, they, they were not going to, to maintain that combat outpost. And we were talking about just an hour and 15 minutes outside of Kabul, right? And, and again, well, it's, it's close. And if, if the geography of Kabul, it sits in the middle of surrounded by mountains. So as is, as is, has been the difficulty for U.S. forces and Afghan forces, it's really tough to defend an area that has only got a few entrance points to it. So, so for the Taliban to surround Kabul would be pretty easy. They're already at Jalalabad, which is just outside. It'd be like being the suburbs of D.C. They're already there. They're already at Kapisa. So they're breathing down the neck of Kabul anyway. As, again, this is something that when I spoke to General Miller, he said through his intermediaries, he said one thing we've told the Taliban is don't smash the place up on the way in. Don't don't ruin the infrastructure. Don't take out bridges and take out important buildings or schools or hospitals or any of that, because if you are going to be part of the new Afghanistan, you're going to need that. But that is what we're talking about. That's the reality of where the Taliban are right now and what might happen in the future. And as you're probably about to point out, what about the airport? What about the embassy? Yes, go. What about the okay. airport? What about the embassy? Okay, those are two extremely important obviously the embassy is an important uh, situation to discuss but the airport is one that we may not unless you've been on the ground you may not appreciate how important it is to keep the airport uh, open and running currently the airport is defended and i use the term defended um, by the turkish military under what was resolute support which is the nato mission that that the u.s was, was in command of and it's still under that remit. Now, as of August 31st, according to President Biden, all U.S. forces will have left. All U.S. forces will have left, aside from a contingent of hundreds of Marines that will protect uh, the U.S. Embassy and a number that will all unspecified number of uh, soldiers that will help provide security uh, for the airport. Now, right now, uh, the Turkish military is providing that security under the auspices and command of the U.S. military. However, it, the relationship between the United States and Turkey, certainly militarily, has always been fraught, and it's especially fraught there. So to have an understanding that the Turks are going to provide security, they're going to need 
weaponry. Uh, they're going to need uh, uh, intelligence. They're going to need surveillance. They don't have any of those things. And that's going to take uh, the U.S. military. In terms of the embassy, you know, we're not talking about a building. The U.S. embassy is a massive compound, and it's within the green zone itself. And embassies all over the world, including places like London, uh, you'll have an outer perimeter of British security, and then you're going to have U.S. Marines who are providing security for the embassy itself. So, so Afghanistan is not unique. Iraq is not unique. Embassies all over the world have their own private forces. That's fine as long as you have an agreement with the Afghan government. The Taliban have said any, any, not specific, but any foreign forces that are there past September 11th, which wasn't even the agreed date for them, but they're letting that slip. Any U.S. force, uh, U.S. soldier, any foreign forces that are there would be considered invaders and therefore legitimate targets. So now you can see that we're going to have an issue potentially. Which means, which means, in short, the airport and the embassy will be legitimate targets and will be vulnerable for the foreseeable future. Yes, and and the the reason the airport is is vital and, and critical for obvious reasons, but you got to have the NGOs, right? The people who are who are providing non governmental uh, organizations, non government right. organizations that are providing aid, uh, the Red Cross, the UN, any That's number. That's how they of get in and get out, and you resupply. Got, You've got the other embassies. You've got the Australian embassy. They're already out of there. The German embassy, which is further north, they're gone. The Russians are gone. You know, they're falling like dominoes. The, the Brits have actually asked whether they can be housed within the compound of the U.S. embassy. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. And, and, and the interpreter. Talk about dicey. It is right. dicey. And, and people, people are really worried. So we've got two minutes left to go before we have to say farewell to our radio audience. Talk to us about what you know if anything, about plans, if they exist at any level, to move the interpreters who helped the United States and Afghanistan safely out of that country before any of these bad things start to happen? Yes. Well, I do know because we've spoken to the interpreters and plans are underway. Uh, the question is, it's a backlog. It is going to take a tremendous effort, including one from the U.S. military. I'll just give you a for instance. During Obama's, the Obama administration, there are 4,000, they were, they were um, adjudicating 4,000 interpreters in a similar situation out of Iraq a year. If they started right now and were at full sprint, it would take almost five years just to clear the backlog. So they're going to have to speed things up. They're looking at 70,000 people, if you include the families, 19,000 interpreters and their families getting them to Guam, getting them out of the country, and the clock is ticking because the Taliban is moving it. Right. And the president, as you heard and I heard last week, said, we will not abandon them. But it doesn't appear, Charlie, from my vantage point, that these plans are moving anywhere near fast enough to match the rhetoric of the president. It can't be. And, and you know, I think what you're probably going to see, if I'm thinking cynically, is you're probably going to see within the next couple of weeks uh, pictures of interpreters getting onto planes flying. We still don't know yet where they're going to be going to. Guam has been mentioned. Other places, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, right. right? Not sure that's manageable for all kinds of other reasons that we can't get into right now because they'll be vulnerable if they're just across the border for obvious reasons. Um, but yes, I think you'll see a couple of flights leaving, and it will it will look great. It'll look like there's there's movement, but there's no way they're going to be able to clear that backlog 
in time before the Taliban movement. That is the voice of Charlie Daggett, our special guest this week. Charlie, it's been great to have you. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those watching on CBSN and listening on the podcast platform, stay tuned to your takeout outtake. Especial, I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Charlie Daggett is our special guest. Charlie works for CBS. He is a war correspondent. Uh, we have many at CBS, but he has been in Afghanistan dozens upon dozens of times. I do believe for the United States, as it approaches the 20th anniversary of 9-11, this will be the most important strategic uh, international security story of this calendar year. Uh, Charlie, we've talked a lot about Afghanistan. I have never been there. Uh, I've talked to many people who have been there either as a correspondent or stationed with the U.S. Embassy. I know many friends who have served there in the United States military. And one thing comes up I just want to ask you about. They say Afghanistan is rugged but beautiful, and there's a kind of tug that it has on them. Have you experienced that? Major, it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It is one of the most remote places on earth. It, it is, I've, I've told my, my family and friends that if it wasn't so dangerous, you would sell tickets because it's hard to believe that such a place exists on the same planet that we all walk. It is, it is rugged, it is gorgeous, it's remote, uh, it is troubled, that's part of it. Uh, the people are wonderful, they're warm, they're beautiful. And I don't want to make comparisons about war zones. That sounds a little bit crude. But say you go to Iraq. In Iraq, Baghdad is like flat as a pancake. And it's really super hot. And then you go to the desert and it doesn't get any better out there. It's even worse. When you go to, when you go to Kabul, you know, even in the wintertime with, you know, snow-covered mountains and then you travel down to Kandahar and palm trees and date groves and it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful, stunning country. And yes, it does, it does tear at the heartstrings because you so want there to be peace because if it were peaceful, it would be a wonderful place, but it's not. Right. Is there any way to explain to the ordinary American taxpayer how we could have spent so much there and achieved so little? <sighs> That's that's the hardest question of all because people have asked me was because it's not as if we ha it's not as if we have said oh you know we're not going to give a lot of we've given a lot yeah. of money almost every request ever submitted at 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 a uh, aid level at a military level has been granted I know and and it is a point of embarrassment if you speak to the average Afghan you know, I hate that phrase but when you talk to ordinary people they're disappointed. They know, they know the money that's been spent. I mean, it's been shoved down their throats at every turn. The Afghans aren't immune to what's been happening. There's so much corruption in the government. There's so many people who are just pocketing the cash. The Afghan military just hasn't come up with the goods. They should. You know, President Biden said they are well-armed. They're well-trained. They are. They're, they are definitely one of the best-trained and best-armed militaries in the region and that says something and yet they're incapable of, of taking on this fight but the question is and people ask me was it worth it i can't answer that because i think i think the question then is what what was what worth it what what were we trying to achieve if it was the idea to get rid of osama bin laden okay that's been that's happened was it the idea to crush al-qaeda that's happened al-qaeda is you asked me before al-qaeda is in afghanistan yes they're not operating in any meaningful way uh 
the invasion has been a success because there hasn't been a major uh, terrorist operation that has been launched from Afghan soil in the past 20 years. So, yes, it was working. Was the idea to build an Afghan state, if that was the idea, that was slightly foolhardy, history will prove, was the idea to build up a, an army and defeat the Taliban. That's not possible. Right. So I want to get to the three threshold questions I know you're familiar with. But one other thing, on this program about a year and a half, two years ago, we had Admiral William McRaven on. McRaven on. He led the assault uh, or supervised the assault that got Osama bin Laden. He said, you know, in Afghanistan, we've talked for too long about being on a war footing. We're not on a war footing and haven't been on a war footing in Afghanistan for a long time. He said, I wish we could talk about this mission the way we talk about fire departments. Fire departments are not at war with fire. Fire departments are pre-deployed to be near where a fire might start and to put it out as soon as it does start. And if we talked about Afghanistan in that way, we wouldn't talk about the longest war anymore. We would talk about putting a fire out before it gets out of control. I'd like your thoughts on that. You know, it's, it's a very good comparison because it's exactly the position or the posture, as the military likes to use the term, uh, that the American military was in. They haven't been engaged in combat since what, 2017, 2018. Um, they had been in a trained advise, advisory role, trained advise and assist is the, the term that they use. Uh, and they were there and they are there in order to put out fires. Um, winning against the Taliban was, I don't believe it was ever the remit. Um, helping Afghan forces is and has been the remit, but that hasn't happened for, for quite a long time either. Uh, the, the number of airstrikes that have been launched uh, right. th that have been... Way, way down. Yeah, that have been authorized by U.S. forces is way down, uh, partly because they don't have the eyes and ears in order to direct the airstrikes. And that's that over-the-horizon thing is going to be difficult to manage from CENTCOM in Tampa, uh, not being on the ground. I mean, good luck to them, but it's, it's, it's a long way away to try to try to yes, get uh, decent I, I, intelligence. I will, I, I will, I will do this for you, Charlie. I will file over the horizon, uh, lethality, uh, under the heading of uh, happy talk. Um, so before I let you go, the three threshold questions we ask all of our guests, um, and you could take these in whichever order you prefer. One of the most influential books in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and uh, you take a lot of long flights. Uh, I hope some of them are more luxurious than others. When you do, and if you're going to really enjoy some music, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Well, it's funny you should say the book because I'm reading Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, now. And the irony there is I have spent most of my life pretending that my surroundings don't exist. <laughs> I have yeah, become an occupational hazard. Yeah, I've become a master way. of escapism, and I'm not entirely sure that that's really what I what I want to delve into. Uh, but he makes a very important point there. He said, "You know, we do start forget. We can easily screen out um, the static in our lives when you are in a life and death situation." Now, thank goodness, most of us aren't in a life and death situation. But I have been in a life and death situation. And oh, my God, your clarity of thought is amazing when something like that happens. But trust me, there are no distractions when you might die in the next 20 seconds. So that's been interesting. Um, the second one, well, you know, because I'm a Sicilian and, you know, I, I come from the East Coast, the Godfather has always been the most frequently mentioned movie. 
Well, because it, it was profound. It was it was well done. It was it was well told. Uh, the actors uh, were unparalleled, you know, to my mind. And maybe it was just because I was that age when I was impressionable. But you know, you know, I I, I always thought I was Sonny Corleone. I was the guy who's going to get shot. <laughs> I'm the guy who gets shot, the up, shot up at the you're causeway. You're gonna get shot at the causeway. Yep. That's me, because <laughs> I can't control my emotions. <laughs> I identified with that film in a way that I probably shouldn't have. Understood. Understood. What kind of music do you dig, Charlie? Well, I know it sounds crazy, but um, I, I I love R&B. Prince to me is is a genius. When people ask me, is there one person that you wish you would have interviewed. I, I would have loved to have gotten inside the head of Prince. I think he's a genius or he was a genius and I can listen. And again, it dates myself because I, I, I knew a music critic that said all the best music that any of us knew was between the ages of 18 and 22. And that's pretty much where it ends. <laughs> so that's pretty, I was glad to be alive. And in that, in that moment when, when he was, when he was hitting it out of the park. Um, but you know, I listen to music on the way into war zones sometimes. And um, I remember we were outside of Fallujah and I was with, the, uh, with some U.S. Marines and it was going to get bad. It was really, really going to get bad. And they were listening to Killing in the Name of uh, by, by Rage Against the Machine. And it reminded me, I played, I played a bit of American football in high school. And I remember getting pumped up and listening to stuff like that. And there you saw these... 22 year old you know fighting machines and i asked one of the guys i said what do you what do you think of when you go into battle he said it's pretty simple kill them before they kill me and you know it's it's really you know very clear it's really there yeah not a lot of ambiguity charlie daggett so great to talk to you be well travel safe thanks for the time thanks for the knowledge and we'll see you soon thank you major so folks we'll see you next week Thanks for taking the takeout. Bye-bye. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.